Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We come this morning to the celebration of the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Something that we do regularly in the last Sunday of every month and a few other times during the year. And we don't always talk about it a lot, but I think sometimes it's good to talk about it a little bit more. And so this morning I'd like to return to the uh, words of institution that they're called in 1 Corinthians 11 and also a verse in 1 Corinthians 10 and talk a bit again about what we're doing as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 23, down to 26. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then back one page to 1 Corinthians 10, just one verse, verse 16, on the same subject, 10:16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Just those verses I want us to think about this morning. And in those verses, we have three truths. As I understand them, we have three truths set forth. The one in the first part of 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 24, 25. The, the second in the last verse, 26. And then the third thing in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Three points. The first is this. Here at the Lord's table, here we remember the cost of our deliverance. Here we remember the cost of our deliverance. You know, when great uh, historical events occur, we vow that we will never forget Pearl Harbor. We will never forget a day that we'll remember in, inf in infamy. Uh, we labor to remember. 9-11, we will never forget this. We will never, ever just let this become normal. But in reality, we do forget. We're an impulsive society. We live for the moment, and we quickly forget what happened in the past. But in the Lord's Supper, the Lord says to us, remember. Remember. Every time you eat this bread, remember. Every time you drink this cup, remember. Specifically, we are to remember the cost of our salvation, that Jesus died in order that we might be free of sin and death. Here Christianity is admittedly different from all the religions of the world. Other religions look to the lives and teaching of their founder. But Christians look back to Jesus' death. Not that we disregard his life and teaching, but we see all of that consummated in his death on the cross for us. We, we read that kind of thing in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, he's all of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Endured the cross. Now the point of that, of course, is that on the cross he made atonement for us. 
he did not die a, a man before his time, misunderstood. He did not, not die as a martyr for a cause. He died as a sacrificial lamb, as the sin bearer being sacrificed in our place. He died to pay the price of our deliverance. And so here at the supper, we remember that there's no true Christianity but the Christianity of the cross. We remember that our religion is not primarily a system of great ideals and examples. It is a Christianity which has God's solution to the wretched, sinful condition of mankind, that God sent his son, Jesus, to pay our sin debt in full by his death at the hands of sinful men. Here we remember the cost of our deliverance. Now it's important that we remember that for several different reasons. It's important that we remember that because we're called to discipleship, to follow this Jesus. And what does that discipleship look like? Well, it looks a lot like what he did. When he says to us, if you want to follow me, take up the cross every day. Deny yourself and come follow me. We understand more about our discipleship when we understand about Jesus' death on the cross. It also matters because we, it, it reminds us of the obligation that we have the obligation that we owe the Lord. We read about it in 1 Peter. You were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. Or, or, or as, uh, as the Apostle Paul says it in another, another place, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. This, remembering also warns us then of the cost of turning away. It's one thing if we have been taught some idea and we decide we don't agree with that idea and turn away. But Hebrews 10 tells us what happens if we turn away from the one who died on the cross for our sin and shed his blood. We read in Hebrews 10, if we continue to sin after coming to a knowledge of the truth, we are trampling the Son of God underfoot. We're treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctifies us. And we're insulting the spirit of grace. Oh, that ups the ante a bit, doesn't it? It's not just a difference of opinion. To turn away from the Lord is to trample Jesus underfoot. It's to consider his blood an unholy thing. It's to insult his grace. We need to remember the cost of our deliverance. And that's why we come to the table. So have you been forgetting? Have you forgotten how hopeless you were? When Christ redeemed you, have, forgotten that, have you forgotten the debt that you owe? Have you forgotten that Christ's goal was not just to deliver you from the, the awful burden of guilt, but to deliver you from the power of sin? Are you going back to ignoring your sins and just letting it ride? Have you forgotten his forgiveness? Are you wallowing in, forget, in guilt as if there's no answer to that? This morning as we come to the table, I call you to remember. Remember the depth of the pit from which you were taken. Remember the greatness of God's grace extended to you. Remember the radical newness of life that we have in Jesus. Jesus says this, as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, remember, remember, remember.
But here at the Lord's table, we don't just look back on something. We also look forward, and it brings us to our second point. Here we rekindle our hope of glory. Here we rekindle our hope of glory. You know, we're a culture of the here and now. What you see is all there is. And we look around us, and it often looks grim, and uh, both for the world and for ourselves. But as Christians, we must stand against this tide of despair. For what you see is not all there is. There is much more. Judgment day is coming when God will set the crooked straight. And beyond judgment, glory is coming when Jesus makes everything new. So here at the Lord's table, we don't let ourselves forget that. We rekindle the hope of the glory that's to come. For Jesus, once crucified, is no longer dead. God raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. So in the supper, we look to the future, not in despair, but, but certain of a more glorious day. Indeed, the words of institution that we read. Uh, put the, the, the sacrament in that context. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes, looking forward to his coming, in other words. When our situation seemed hopeless, when our deliverance from the sin of the past seems to be nullified by the power of sin today, we return frequently to the table to proclaim in the supper that Jesus' death is enough. He doesn't need to be sacrificed again. He has paid for our sin once for all. And so we can run to him for forgiveness and in, do, in doing so find his grace is ex, inexhaustible and proclaim that here is hope of glory to come. Dear saints, don't cower in fear. Don't give up in the middle of trouble. Today, certainly there's struggle, but victory is assured to us in Jesus even though that glory seems far away and defeat seems to be knocking at our door, we sit down at the Lord's table and we rekindle our hope, anticipating the day we eat this token of the great wedding feast to come. Recently we studied, uh, well, not so recently, a little bit, a while back, the life of uh, David in First and Second Samuel you remember the life of David? We talked about it a little bit in, in conjunction with the psalm. David was uh, anointed to be the next king. He was God's choice. God has set him aside for himself, set him apart for himself. But the king, but seeing kings all hated him for that. And so David was reduced to being a fugitive and hiding out in the desert and roaming uh, about, running for his life and an outcast being hunted by the king and the king's army, betrayed by all who sought the king's favor, people like Doeg that we read about. But in the midst of that, a few people still believed that David was the one God had chosen. And they were a miserable bunch of people. They were people in distress, and they were people that were in debt, and they were people who were discontented, and they were people who were considered losers, but that ragtag band believed that God had chosen this one, this David, and God would do what he had promised. 
Though Saul's kingdom was very much in power, and though they were being hunted like animals, God had rejected Saul, and the future was with David. David was the Lord's anointed. Victory was assured, not because they could see it. They couldn't see it. It looked the opposite, but because God had promised. And folks, that's exactly our situation. The world thinks Jesus is finished. He thinks that's a relic of the past, insignificant, irrelevant. The leaders of the world often conspire to rid society of any, any vestige of the name of Jesus. But God has declared him to be his anointed one, his Messiah, his king. So even when the forces of evil are very much in power around us, there's no question what the outcome is going to be. God himself has promised and so we gather around this table to rekindle our hope and the glory to come. Christ died to purge the world from sin and death. God raised him from the dead in victory. And so now it's just a matter of time until we see the whole plan worked out. So we serve him, no matter what others may think, no matter whether it's popular or not. We've read the last chapter. We see where history is headed and today we sit down and eat this token of the victory feast. We rekindle our hope in glory. Finally, there's a third thing that we're doing as we gather at the Lord's table. And that's what we read back in chapter 10, verse 16. Here at the table, here we partake of Jesus. Here we partake of Jesus. I don't know about you, I kind of hate things that are so intangible I can't quite get my hands on them. Um, you know that they're there. You know that they're true. You just, they, def they, they, they defy concrete expression sometimes. When I was a kid, I noticed math was kind of like this. When you're adding two plus two and getting four, that was real concrete. You could count that on your fingers. Sometimes about the time you get into algebra, it starts getting a little intangible. You can't count on your fingers anymore. And you know that there's something there, but it's harder. Well, the work of Christ on the, uh, of Christ on the cross is the ultimate, ultimate intangible. Though it's a historical event, though it happened in a way people saw it happen, and yet the meaning of it and what's going on there is intangible, and especially to us. It's removed from us by time. This is 2,000 years ago this took place. It's removed from us geographically. This was halfway around the world. It's removed from us culturally. This took place in, in a cultural setting that we know almost nothing about, we, I mean, that we don't participate in. We, we're not comfortable in that. But most of all, it took place shrouded in mystery for the real work of Christ was what went on between Christ and the Father and in his infinite wisdom, something that is invisible and incomprehensible to us. So how can we ever get a handle on that? How could we ever get something tangible that we can grab hold of when we're trusting in Jesus? Well, again, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead the third day. He ascended into heaven. He is alive today. He sent his Holy Spirit to join us to Jesus in a spiritual union. And now one of the chief ways that we experience that grace of God in Jesus, one of the chief means by which the Spirit works in us 
is through the sacraments that he has ordained. Through the Lord's Supper, through baptism. Here in the Supper, we partake in a tangible way, we partake of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of disagreement on how this works. People have argued about this for years. The Holy Spirit communicates Jesus to us here, but how exactly does he do that? Some people have said, well, it's just automatic. The power is in the sacrament. So when you eat and drink the bread and wine, uh, you, you receive the grace. It's like taking a pill. You take the pill, you get the medicine. It's that simple. Others have said, no, 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 no. It's the Holy Spirit's work, and the Holy Spirit, nobody controls the Spirit. The Spirit works however he wants to work. He chimes us in whatever setting, whatever reason, in whatever words, without words. He communicates grace to us, and, and we know it because God's working in us. But actually, probably the truth is somewhere between the two. The Spirit is certainly sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, but God has ordained certain means that he uses to communicate his grace to us. And one of the primary ones is the Lord's Supper. Here, because of the Spirit's work, as we eat and drink, we commune. We have fellowship. We, have, we take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we experience his presence with us as we participate in his death. That's exactly what Jesus said when he and when they instituted this sacrament, this is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood. First Corinthians 16, the cup and bread are a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. The Greek word there is koinonia. It's a word for fellowship. The body and blood, the, the, the bread and the wine are a a, a fellowship, a participation, a communing in the body and blood of Jesus. You see, the supper is more than a symbol. Here, in ways that we cannot quite grasp, but here we actually partake of Jesus. Oh, that does not mean we're chewing on the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. The bread's still bread, the wine's still wine. But somehow it is not an overstatement for Jesus to say, this is my body. This is my blood. Again, much has been written about that. Many people have argued for centuries. I think it need not be so difficult for us. Illustration that helps me understand it a bit is one used by Johannes Wolebius, who lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Let me explain his way of thinking. Up north of us here, about seven miles or so, is a road called Boundary Road. You've probably been on there. There's Boundary Road in the U.S., the last road in the U.S., then there's a ditch, and then there's Zero Avenue, and that's in Canada. And between Boundary Road and, and uh, Zero Avenue, a, a, an area not much wider than this aisle, there are stone markers. And on one side they say Canada, and on the other side they say United States. Now, Wolebius referred to stone markers like that, stone monuments. He speaks of a rock which, by the word of the king, has been made a boundary stone. 
Now, everyone knows it's still a stone. But it's used as a boundary marker so far overshadows its simple identity as a stone that it's right and proper to speak of this as this is the boundary. And if you step over the boundary past the stone, you've stepped over the boundary. You don't believe it. Go up there sometime and stop your car for a few minutes and go take a walk around the boundary stone. You'll have company in about 30 seconds, I've learned. In the same way, the Lord's Supper is a communion, a participation in the body and blood of Jesus given for us. It is certainly still bread and wine. But for all who recognize the word of God, the word of the king, and come in faith to Jesus, crucified for us, this is his body, and this is his blood. This morning I call you to come to Jesus. You are broken and contrite. But nonetheless confess that you have no other hope but him. The Savior is not far off. He's come near. He is as near as this bread and this wine that you can see it and you can smell it and you can touch it and you can taste it. The intangible becomes concrete as we eat and drink together. Here we come to partake of Jesus. The richness of the significance of this sacrament is, is boundless. But it has at least this past and future and present significance. Here we look back and remember the cost of our salvation. Here we look forward and rekindle the hope of glory. And here, as we persevere in this present world, here we partake of Jesus, who is our life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we try to explain the inexplicable. And yet you didn't ask us to explain it. You only asked us to believe what you said and to come. And promised to meet us here. And so, Lord, we come believing your promise. We don't understand. We don't even understand all the things we can say about it that we know are true, but we can't comprehend it all. And yet we believe what you said. And so we come to remember. We come in hope of glory. We come to meet you here, Lord Jesus. Meet us, we pray. Amen.